open our hearts, that we have open hearts to receive what you have to say to us, that you guide me in what I say, but Lord, that your Holy Spirit takes the words shared, quickens them, plants them in our heart, and Lord, we pray they bring forth fruit for your glory. Amen. This morning I hope to, uh, well, I tr will, I pray I will, bring a word of encouragement and hope, uh, especially in these times. But the t t topic of my message this morning is that Jesus Christ is sufficient. And I could sort of expand on that a bit wider. Jesus Christ alone is completely sufficient. He's sufficient in all our circumstances, at all times, and in every way. Now the world, through people, through advertisements, through institutions, they won't tell you that. The word of that is that God doesn't exist, or that he doesn't care. Satan and his demons, they will, mostly through your own thoughts, but they'll tell you that that's not true. Jesus isn't sufficient. Even by your own self-reasoning and your own self-thoughts, you can come to believe that God doesn't care about you. God's forgotten you. Even you've done something that's too bad for God to forgive you. But none of those are true. The truth of the matter is that Jesus is completely sufficient for us. In all times, in all circumstances, and in every way. Now this truth is expounded right throughout Scripture. Everywhere in the Bible, this is what's expounded by God. I'm just thinking of one verse, Hebrews 11, 28, 29, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's a promise from God that he has sufficient for us, a promise by Jesus Christ himself. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. We can't get help anywhere else but Christ. Our thoughts will tell us we can. The world might tell us we can. But it's really Jesus Christ is our only answer. And that's because who he is and it's because what he has accomplished for us. Jesus, who is God, he came as a man. He lived a sinless life and he was crucified. And most importantly, he rose again. John describes Christ in John 1. He starts off and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. There's also a, scripture, a passage of Scripture when Paul's writing to the Philippians. And he's writing about the same thing, but he writes it in a slightly different way starting at verse 6 through to verse 11 of chapter 2. Though he, and he's talking about Jesus here, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count it equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a powerful part of Scripture, and I just want to go over that again. Though he was in the form of God, you see, Paul's saying there he wasn't in the form of angels, he wasn't in the form of a man, he was God. John had already described that. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He was prepared to let it go. He wasn't like us that we were holding on to something so tight that I won't let it go. He said, I'll let that go. And he, he, in a says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Taking on the form of a servant unto whom? Taking on the form of a servant unto God the Father. And so he came on this earth and he says, on this earth I do nothing of my own will, but only the will of the Father. And he came and was born, as we know, by Mary in the likeness of man. And he humbled himself and was obedient unto death. He went to the cross as a lamb, not, not reviling others, not as an angry lion, but he went as a lamb with his mouth shut. And we know he died on the cross. But we know after that, therefore it says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Because in his death, God the Father reached down and Jesus was raised up to become alive. And he gave him a name above every other name. And what does that mean? It means all authority is given to Christ. And then he goes on to describe where? In heaven, on earth, and just for completeness, and under the earth, everywhere you can think of, Christ has authority. And everyone and everything will the day will come when everyone and everything in that realm, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is yet to come because we look around the world and there's many who don't confess that. But the day will come, the scripture says, when that will be confessed. And Jesus, so Jesus lived a sinless life. And he rose again that we might be saved from the wrath of God, forgiven of all sin, and that also we might be made righteous. And there's more to it. It's a bit like when they're selling on TV and they say you can buy six steak knives and there's something more. But it's also that we can receive an inheritance. There's an inheritance for us, and yes, it's in heaven, but it's also on earth for us today. For we're not to be adopted sons, but we are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. For Apostle Paul, uh, I think Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power, that's Christ's divine power, has granted us all things that pertain 
to life and godliness. His divine power has granted, not will grant to us, or might grant to us, or might grant sometimes to us, but has granted. It has been done. It was done when each and every one of us gave our hearts to the Lord. It was granted to us. All things, not some things, all things that pertain to life. When I read that, I wrote down in my notes, all things necessary for life. And then I crossed out necessary and went back to the scripture. All things that pertain to life. Because God is a God who doesn't just give us what is necessary. We can think of a meal and I can have a main course and that's necessary to keep my body going. I don't really need dessert. My wife will tell me I definitely don't need dessert. But God is a God of abundance. And he says, I give you everything that pertains to life. And so not only do I have what is necessary to life, but I have all those other things that pertain to life. And the reason, there's three reasons for that I'll give because of Jesus Christ, that why he is sufficient. At salvation, we are placed in Christ and Christ is in us. And we are adopted into the family of God and God's inheritance or Christ's inheritance becomes our inheritance. So the first reason is that we are in Christ. The second is God's nature. God's nature, part of God's nature is faithfulness. He will never forsake me. He will never forsake you. No matter what circumstances you're going through, no matter what trials or hardships or fears, God will not forsake you. In fact, God cannot forsake you in a way because it's his very nature. He can't deny his nature. He can't deny himself. Like I'm flesh and blood. I'm not plastic. I cannot be plastic. I'm, I, I'm flesh and blood. God is faithful. He cannot be unfaithful. That's who he is. He's faithful. And the third reason is God has all might and power and is the only one who's able to deliver me in all circumstances, at all times, and in every way. There's no one else I can turn to. It's Christ who can deliver me. He is the one who made the whole world. He is the creator of the creation. And so therefore, he has all might and power. Nothing created has more power than God. And so there's nothing I can turn to to find the answers to life apart from Christ. Now what we must not get confused between is what God wants and what we want. Or as I can put it, fruitfulness and outcomes. I want to tell three stories from the Bible that really try, hopefully bring this into clarity. The first is in Paul, or talking about Paul, is found in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. But Paul describes it as a thorn in the flesh. He says no more about that in the Bible, apart from he says he has a thorn in the flesh. It means he has something painfully wrong with himself. And he cries out to God and he says, I pleaded with God three times. Lord, take this from me. And the answer he got from God was not deliverance from that thorn in the flesh. But the answer was, my grace is sufficient for you, 
And when he says, my grace, that's God speaking. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul learned to live with that thorn in the flesh for the glory of God for the rest of his life. And it was something that Paul accepted. Because Paul saw that it was a purpose of God, for the glory of God to be manifested greater in his weakness, in Paul's weakness. I want to take you to another story of three young men. There were four of them, Daniel included, but they were taken by Nebuchadnezzar when he came and sacked Jerusalem and took them off to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that those young men had been raised in, in Judah and raised well and educated well. And so he took them into his court and he raised them up and trained them so they could be governors in his land. And they were. But the day came when Nebuchadnezzar, whom we would call a megalomaniac, decided that he would build a huge statue of himself, a huge one. And everybody, the command went out that everybody in his empire had to bow down and worship that statue. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, up until that point they had been obedient. They obeyed their authority. They obeyed Nebuchadnezzar. But in this matter, they went to him and said, Nebuchadnezzar, in this matter we cannot obey you. We can only worship our God. We cannot worship you and will not worship you. And he said, right, I'll throw you into a big furnace, a fire. If you won't worship me, you'll get burned. And they said back to him, well, if you do that, our God can save us, but we want you to know, even if he doesn't, he could. And so they gave themselves up to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar had the fire burnt, and those that took them up, the fire was so hot, when those that took them up to throw them into the furnace, they were consumed. They were burnt. But the three young men, they must have been a bit older by then, but the three men who went into the fire, he said that Nebuchadnezzar looked at them, and he thought he saw four walking around in the flames. And he called them forth, but only three came forth, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it said they had no smell of smoke on them. They were completely untouched. You know, that speaks to us in the sense of our salvation. We come to Christ, and there's no smell of my past on me. Nothing touching me. I'm now pure before Christ. And the third one I want us to look at is Stephen, found in Acts 6 and 7. The apostles found themselves busy with the new church and busy with the administration side of the new church. And so they said to the congregation, choose, I think, I don't know how many, I should know, but say, choose some men to replace us because we want to devote ourselves to the word of God. And so they chose some men and one of them was Stephen. And it says Stephen went around doing, doing what he was uh, uh, elected to do, which was to serve the table, to look after widows, to administer in the church. But it said he went around doing mighty things with signs and wonders. And so he was powerful in God. And that disturbed the religious leaders who took him up to their council. So the Jewish leaders came and grabbed him and took him to their council. And in the council, you, I encourage you to read Acts 6 and 7. He gives a wonderful testimony 
of the history of the Jewish nation and the, the promise of God of the coming Messiah. And he finishes his testimony by saying, you killed the Messiah. And at that they were enraged and they took him out and stoned him. And as they stoned him, he didn't cry out for his salvation. He didn't cry out, Lord, deliver me from these people. Let me walk away from here, not hurt. I presume he could have, but he didn't. He lifted up his hands and he said, Lord, forgive them for what they do. And so we, say, we see three stories that I've just covered. Stephen, he died. The outcome for Stephen wasn't what maybe we would have thought should have been the outcome. The outcome for Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach and Abednego, they were, de they were delivered from the fire and they, and, and they weren't killed. And yet, in both cases, they were men who found favour with God. And with Paul, he was never delivered from that thorn in the flesh. And yet, we read the, of the testimony and what Paul has written and has come down all through the ages. And his testimony of God is sure and true. And I believe for all of them, their rewards in heaven and they met everything because God's purposes for us can be different from what we want. What God wants can be different from what we want. And to help us through that, I just want to look at what happens to us at salvation. At salvation, you and I, we're given a completely new spirit. I'm given a spirit, a new spirit, not my old one regenerated, a new spirit, and it's righteous, and it remains righteous before God. It remains righteous as I walk around, as I live my life, I remain righteous before God. I come before God and I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, my spirit being pure because of the blood of Jesus. Because of him, he's my sufficiency to stand before God. But that's just the start. You see, God wants fruitfulness and Christlikeness in my life and in your life. And it doesn't come with a new spirit. Because the Christlikeness or the um, fruitfulness in my life arises out of my soul. Out of my soul, I don't get a new soul at, trans, at, at, at salvation. My old soul is still with me. And that's why it says to us, let your mind be like that which is in Christ Jesus. Or in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but let your mind be transformed that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, because after I get saved and I have a new spirit, my, my, my soul needs transforming. And I need to come more and more like Christ and come more and more to have Christ thinking. And that's what God wants. God's much more, much more interested in my fruitfulness and maturity. Now, I'm not saying he's not interested at all in my health. But in Paul's case, he left Paul with a sickness, a thorn in the flesh. But Paul heard God. He knew where he was going. He knew he was going to Rome. He knew he was going to be imprisoned in Rome. And Paul lost his life in Rome. He was executed. That was God's purpose for him. 
but he knew that God had a purpose for him and he knew that what God was looking for his life was his testimony across of Asia, his testimony and the sharing of the good news of God, which he carried out joyfully. See, the process after salvation is about restoring my soul. It's about leaving aside worldly thinking and thinking like Jesus Christ. It's about dying to my self-will and accepting God's will. That's what it talks about in Philippians, where it talks about Jesus emptied himself and came as a servant to earth. He came as a servant to God the Father. He laid aside his will and he only did the will of the Father on earth. And therefore he didn't sin. If he'd followed his own will, he would have sinned. But he didn't. He followed the will of the Father. And it's not only following the will of the Father, but it's seeking it and accepting it in our lives. Restoring my soul is to learn to love. It's easy to learn to love those who love me. It's to learn to love the unlovely. It's to learn to love the difficult. It's to learn to love those that disagree with me. It's learn to love those that don't like me, or for you to learn to love those who don't like you, to love them. They might hate you. They may not want to be in your presence. But God wants us to be fruitful and to love them. And how do we do that? How do I come to that place of willingly and happily and joyfully following Christ? and seeing him as our sufficiency in all circumstances. See, it's easy to say these things, but in the reality, when I'm locked down for 100 weeks with a partner whom I might not that get along well with at the beginning very well, and definitely by after the 100 days, I'm not getting on at all very well with. But what about if you're with children and they started off sort of okay, but you're ready to box their ears by the end of the 100 days? Or you might have financial issues that have only gotten worse. Or you've got job issues and you're looking for a job and you can't see the answer. The passage of scripture that most concisely shows how God provides and makes himself available is our sufficiency. And I want to turn to it. It's in Psalm 19, 7 to 10. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. It gives six descriptions of the law, of the word of God there. When it's talking about the law of the Lord or the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, they're all facets of the word of God. And we read 
from John saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because the Word and God are not that separable. When, Jesus, when God spoke, things happen. By his word, things happen. For his word contains power and contains life. And it's the written word of God, which I hold here as we know as the Bible, the written word of God, it's through that that Christ speaks to us. He speaks to us other ways, yes. But it's the written word that he's given. For God, it is and was the spoken word of God unto men's hearts to be written down. For us, not as a teaching book, although it does edify us and teaches us, but so that the Holy Spirit takes those words and brings them alive to us and actually changes us. And so the... I'll just go through some of those. The, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's complete for the storing of my soul. I don't need anything else to restore my soul. I don't need anything else to restore my soul. In fact, nothing else can restore myself, my soul except the, the law of God. I find the truth in here to restore my soul. The world will tell you that the restoration of your soul can be in self-thought. It will tell you that you can find it at institutions. It will tell you that you can go and find that in counseling sessions elsewhere. And you might even raise an argument with me as you hear me saying this, saying, no, that's true, you can. The reality is, and the truth of the matter is, Jesus Christ is our sufficiency and it's his law that restores my soul. And your soul will not be restored elsewhere but through Jesus Christ. And that's a word that's contrary to the world. And the world does not like that. And they stoned Stephen because he told a story that was contrary to their way of thinking. And those were religious men who stoned him. The second one says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And again, you can say to me, well, I know I go to university and I get a lot of education at university and I can learn to differentiate numbers and I can learn to do lots and lots of design or scientific experiments at university that make me wise. But the wisdom that's, of, that, that's in heaven and the wisdom of God is not that you, what you gain at university. The wisdom of heaven and the wisdom you get from God comes from this very book itself, from the words of God. And they make the simple wise. And we're all simple. Whether I've got a doctorate degree or whether I may have never been to university, we are simple in the things of God and in the things of life until we come to God and until that word has an impact on us. And then we start to become wise. And then we start to understand what, the, what, the, what this world is about. And then we start to understand what our purpose in this world is for. And then we start to have wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The precepts of the light of the Lord, they're the general rules. The general rules like honoring those in authority. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they honored Nebuchadnezzar. He was their authority. Up until that point, they honored him. 
They went to him and respectfully said, Nebuchadnezzar, we cannot worship you. But they honored him. And there's a difference. The commandments of the Lord are, of the Lord is pure, giving light to the eyes. But I won't go any further than that. I want to go to the next point, which is the second part of how do I partake of that sufficiency of Christ? Because sufficiency is in the word, but how do I partake of it? How does it become real in my life when I'm facing financial ruin or facing relationship issues or whatever I am facing? I want to go to, and the story of this is found in um, Exodus, Exodus 16. But God was taking the children of Israel, the nation of Israel from Egypt to the promised land, and they were in the wilderness, and they were going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And they were without food, and they were crying out to God, we're hungry. And God provided for them. He provided them with manna that sustained them each and every day. And there were a couple of things he said they must do. The manna came down as dew at night, and it was on the ground. And when the dew went, there was manna lying on the ground. And they had to collect it, because when the sun got hot, it melted. So there was a time to collect it. But they were only to collect enough for one day. Didn't have to be very much. They said they had to get an omer, which is one-tenth of an ephah. That means nothing to us, but you know, I looked it up and it's about two liters. About a two liter jar full, that's what they had to collect. And that was going to sustain them that day. And it would sustain them the next day. And on the Saturday, they had to get twice the amount. One for Saturday and one for Sunday, because in the morning, there was none. But the, the lesson for us in that, that that mana was just enough for that day. It wasn't for the next day or the day after. And the word of God is for us now. It's not for tomorrow or the next day. It's for today. And am I going to eat it today? Gather it and eat it. And you know, the children of Israel, they had to gather it, but they all didn't have to gather it. Sometimes only one of their family had to go out and gather it. But they all had to gather enough for each one of them. But they did to partake of it to live. Otherwise, they were going to die in the wilderness because they didn't have other food. And it was relatively a small amount. So each day they had to take, get some. Each day they had to partake of it. And it was, wasn't, they didn't have to study the whole Bible. They didn't have to learn chapter by chapter and pass exams in it. They had to take enough for each day that the Holy Spirit would take and quicken that word, applying it to us today, and Make it alive in our heart so that I might obey that word and find that I walk from unfruitfulness to fruitfulness, that my mind gets transformed from worldly thinking to Christ-like thinking. And then I will start to find my relationships healing and changing. Then I'll find that those situations I face where I'm poverty-stricken or thinking I'm going to be poverty-stricken, changing. And by God's grace, finding him providing work or finding a food agency to give us food or finding deliverance in whatever form it comes. But that's our God. God is not just a God of words. God creates and he delivers. And he delivers in the most remarkable of ways, whether it's through a doctor who might heal my leg 
but it's God who does the delivering. And so God, Jesus Christ is our sufficiency. Without him, we are adrift. Without turning to him. And so what must we do at these times? And I know some people have found it upsetting. Anxious times of lockdown. Stressful times of lockdown. And the answer is in Christ. To turn to Christ. And to partake of him a small amount each day. If you're not saved, a large amount. Accepting him himself. But if we are saved, we can think, oh no, I'll busy myself later with the word. I will mow the lawns. I will do something else. I will go to the beach. I will do whatever. But God says, no. If you wish to have life, if, you th if the simple seek to become wise, if you wish to have light for your eyes, if you wish for your heart to grow in love for that man who hates you, we turn to the word and we read a word. And the Holy Spirit takes that word and places it in our heart. And the word of God will divide my spirit from my soul. It will divide joints from marrow. And it will bring life to me. And I'll find my soul being restored. And my soul becoming more like Christ. For his glory. For God's purpose is to raise up a people. God's purpose is to raise a church who will shine his glory to the world. And God, is Jesus is returning. But it says before he returns that he will have a perfect bride. And that perfect bride and that righteous bride we brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to change us. So that God might look upon us and says, well done, my good and faithful servants. So I encourage you, in the midst of your turmoil, in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of your fears, seek Christ. He has the answer. Seek him in a small way, one scripture at a time, and you'll find that he does have the answer. And you'll find to your surprise, as you do that, you'll find that there's a change going on in your heart, something you can't explain, something you can't describe, except I know that I've experienced it. God working in me and causing me to open my eyes and my eyes to see, thing, see things a different way. And all of a sudden, that, which seemed to be a mountain, all of a sudden I start to see being a small hill or even a flat plain. No longer seems to be an obstacle to climb over. And that might not happen overnight. That might take one month, two, one week, one month, two months, three months. These things happen in our lives for our whole life until we come to meet Christ again, either through death or he returns. Because it's a work in progress. But it's a promise from God that as the more we push into him and open our hearts to him through his word, the more my soul gets restored. We'll just finish with prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our sufficiency. We thank you that he made a way that we could come to the Father. We thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit leads us as we read the word of God as we hear the word of God, as we just meditate even on one scripture and a small portion of the word of God, the Holy Spirit will take that and plant that in our hearts. 
And Lord, it will bring forth 30-fold, 60-fold or 100-fold in us. Lord, I pray that it does not get snatched away. I pray it does not get choked by the thorns that grow up, the things of the world that would grow up and seek to choke it. I pray, Lord God, that the ground that the Holy Spirit places that will be soft towards you, not hardened by my self-will. But, Lord, I pray that I would find rest in Christ. I would find peace that surpasses understanding in him, even in the face of what I'm facing. Thank you, Lord.